electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. That's right, Scott. Thank you. And hello, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Well, the Reddit revolution is back and it's going after weed. Pot stocks, they're sky high today. And one strategist says the retail trading army may actually change the whole game. Go ahead. Name a commodity. Any commodity. It's probably soaring in price. So is a commodity super cycle about to hit and bring inflation with it. And while there may be plenty of corn, there's a growing shortage of chips, semiconductors that is, and it's starting to hit some very unusual markets. We'll show you where. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome. And speaking of the markets, that, of course, and your money is where we begin, because something rather amazing is happening in the stock market today. There are some stocks that are going down. That's right, down, as in not up. All right, all kidding aside, not something we have seen a lot lately. We're still sitting pretty much at or just off all-time highs for pretty much any major index out there. And for most averages, we're up six of the last seven days. Today, trying to make it seven of eight. You got energy doing well, tech underperforming a little bit today, and nearly every commodity is higher lately. Everybody apparently loves oil again. We're about to hit 60 bucks a barrel but let's talk about these broader markets and figure out where we might go from here. Joining us, Matt Maley, Chief Market Strategist at Miller Tayback, and David Harden, CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Summit Global Investments. Welcome to you both. All right, I was a little bit snarky there at the top, Matt, because I love your notes and to read the points. I mean, everything has just been going up. I, I laid the numbers out yesterday. I'll lay them out again. 123 members of the small cap 600 have gained more than 50%. This year, this year, I, I, do you expect any kind of a pullback anytime soon? I do. I think that the market, I mean, it's it's kind of weird how what, what the way we're kind of re, re, replaying what we did last year when the market was priced for perfection. There's a lot of good th- reasons to, to, to think the market go a lot higher, but they've all got to fall into place. Uh, you know, we, we was priced for perfection. Nobody expected that the downturn uh, would, would take place, that the coronavirus would have a major uh, uh, impact on, on the markets and the economy. And, and only a few people were warning about that. Now we have a few, uh, the, uh, Dr. Michael Ulsterholm, uh, who is the head of the uh, Center for uh, Infectious Diseases, and he's called, talking about a Category 5 hurricane of, of, of the, these new uh, variants hitting the, uh, the hospitals, and the hospital uh, hospitalizations are going to skyrocket. That's going to cause more slowdowns. Maybe he's wrong this time, but with the market where it is and really priced for perfection, I just think some people need to step back a little bit, not be chasing the market, especially with so much speculation and leverage in the marketplace right now, and, and be careful about a, sure. a little bit of a pullback. Yeah, David, I do wonder, you know, you look at the math, right? Okay, interest rates are not zero, but they're close. The 10 years come up, but it's still very low. And you may have a couple hundred billion new dollars going into the equity markets when the stimulus checks hit as well. We know that, what, 25 or 30% of the people out there have been putting that money into the equity markets. There's an article I forwarded on that from MarketWatch just today. I mean, it's kind of hard to say stocks go up simply because 
there's more demand than supply, but that seems to be the case. Absolutely. And it's really hard not to be near-term positive on the markets because, listen, we probably have another package coming here soon of $1 trillion. And our estimate is that this time around, even more money might go into savings and the market, upwards of maybe 70% of this next package. So yeah, we, we definitely see, obviously, the stimulus bubble, we think it continues. Um, there's some problems long-term, but who's looking at long-term? Definitely not the flash mob of retail investors. <laughs> well, the, the, David, the amount of equity, and, and Jim Cramer's pointed this out, I've pointed this out, the amount of just stocks on the market has come down by like 30% in the last decade through mergers and buybacks. You've got huge amounts of money in the world, stimulus coming, and I understand Matt's point about the possibility of this fourth wave or whatever it might be from some of these other strains, but the market doesn't care, right? Because it's simply supply-demand, which is also why you like Apple and Amazon. Absolutely. It is, it's getting down to that. It's supply and demand. And I get it. There are some long-term problems. I think people need to look at risk. I think that's the real problem here. A little bit more risk management in today's market would be great, but they're shrugging that off. You look at Amazon and Apple, both $100 billion plus quarters, right? Um, there's some valuation. Apple, people are worried it's 30 times revenue instead of their average five-year at 17. But the reality is, is that valuation has never caused really market collapses. So worrying about valuation in this time period doesn't really make a lot of sense. We like Apple. We like Amazon. Okay. Yeah, Matt, and and listen, we we all know certainly about these variants and mutants, and none of the three of us are doctors. Luckily, the J&J and Novavax candidates have some very positive trials on those those variants, South African in particular, fingers crossed. Outside of that, I mean, outside of some renewed infection rate and, and maybe new lockdowns, is there anything that is risky to you from a market perspective that is simply just, my gosh, the last six months has been a rocket ship and in many cases doesn't necessarily make sense and on some level at least? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing was, is, is that we are, you know, again, I was wildly bullish uh, throughout from October through into early January for a lot of different reasons. And a lot of it had to do with supply and demand uh, that you've been talking about. The problem is that, that now we, you know, we're going to have this great uh, increase in the economy over last year, great increase in earnings over last year, but we're still not going to be uh, much better, only be a little bit better than we were in 2018 and 2019, and yet the stock market's up 50% from those years. I mean, we've gone from last place and seventh place as a baseball team to third place. That's great. And maybe we're going to first place, but the stock market is pricing in a world championship. And this, it, 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 so if something along comes along, the other thing that I'm worried about is the dollar. Everybody's talking about how the dollar, and everybody's positioned to, for a lower dollar. Uh, if we and there's a lot more mo- money in, in the uh, in the uh, currency markets than there are in the stocks like GameStop or in the in the pot stocks. Uh, if the uh, uh, leverage has to be unwound in that area, we're going to have a much bigger uh, wave of deleveraging, and that's yeah. going to cause a much more uh, decline than we saw before. So I just think uh, investors need to be a little bit yeah. more cautious near term uh, and look for opportunities to buy on weakness. There you go. And maybe keep oil going higher if that dollar keeps going lower. Matt Maley, David Harden, a good discussion there, likes Apple and Amazon, but there are risks out there. Okay. With everything in the red today, even the Russell 2000 taking a break from its massive run, hard to believe. But let's be clear, it is still up huge for the year, outpacing even the all-powerful NASDAQ and FANG stocks. But according to bespokes Paul Hickey, the group, the small caps, could be long overdue for a pullback, 
Get the full analysis at cnbc.com slash pro sign up today. All right, as we talked about a little bit, the commodities craze continues. You got a number of commodities hitting multi-year high today. And as we noted, crude oil trading at levels not seen since before the pandemic and lockdowns and closing in on nearly 60 bucks a barrel. You've got copper now at its highest level since 2013. Corn, it's been popping. Remember, it goes into nearly everything we eat. Corn is at a six-year high. Where's beaks? The same goes for soybeans. As the long-awaited commodity super cycle many have been predicting finally arrived. Let's bring in Francisco Blanche. He is head of global commodity and derivatives research at B of A Securities. Francisco, I mean, I'm not even sure the most bullish of the bullish in commodities could have predicted this kind of run. We just talked about what's behind the equity strength. Is it the same thing behind these commodities? Um, I think there are three, three things going on in commodity land. First, uh, you have very strong micro fundamentals, because remember, demand is improving uh, as we deploy the vaccines in the U.S. and around the world. Um, but also, we've had a major supply shock across many commodity markets. Uh, for example, uh, mining is not a particularly COVID-friendly activity, uh, because as you can imagine, there's no ventilation uh, 1,000 feet below ground. So that's one example. Um, but also in terms of, the, in terms of the, the other two things that are driving this, is this enormous monetary and fiscal stimulus that we've uh, put through the economy, not just in the U.S., but also around the world. Remember, we've had twice the stimulus from a fiscal and monetary, uh, monetary uh, policy perspective with how the recession, uh, or maybe in a quarter of the recession, when it comes to ser- when it comes to goods, no, not in services, but in goods in particular. So demand for goods is very strong. Everyone's buying on Amazon. Everyone's buying uh, remotely, even if they're not traveling or spending money in hotels um, and, and entertainment. And then the third element here is it links to the door theme you were just talking about. Is that we are we are buying a lot of stuff, and much of it is being produced in China, which is the world's largest buyer commodities. So Chinese yep. um, current account balances are getting better, and the Chinese currency is strengthening vis-a-vis the dollar, which is allowing for more purchasing power. So you have those three things going on simultaneously, a better Chinese economy, a massive yeah. monetary and fiscal stimulus, and the better micro-fundamentals. I mean, I would even say that, and we've got a segment, by the way, coming up later on this show about a container shortage, because the Chinese economy, Francisco, is not better. It is rocketing. I mean, their surge, and if you look at the export numbers from China to the United States and Europe, they are off the charts. What China came out of the pandemic months ago, life is basically 100% back to normal in almost every city. How much has that impacted all these commodities, not just the United States, but around the world, that surge in demand from the world's second biggest economy? Uh, Well, it's definitely impacting it every day. We see uh, shipments of oil heading to China, which is why oil broke $60 a barrel. One of the reasons, the other reason being OPEC plus agreeing to extend those output curtailments uh, for another quarter, and then Saudi Arabia adding an additional voluntary cut on their end. Uh, but we've had a, an enormous amount of oil heading to China, enormous amount of, uh, of liquid gas, which is why natural gas prices in the Asian markets uh, hit $195 a barrel equivalent in the spot market, right? Again, $195 a barrel of oil for some of this gas. Um, and wow. uh, and we've had we've had uh, uh, similar reactions in, in the copper markets, nickel market, yeah. iron ore market. And to your very, very Francisco, sorry to jump in. 
Sorry to jump in, running out of time. Before I let you go, any commodity you and your team are recommending, fist pounding the table on right now that it still has upside? Uh, we still we think platinum uh, and to some extent silver are going to be commodities that we'll focus a lot on. Uh, platinum we like it a lot because it's got it's got a lot of catch up to do with with gold. We don't mm-hmm. like gold so much here because we think uh, we think the the rising interest rate environment isn't going to help gold. But we do think that the hydrogen economy yep. and 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 the the, the transition to, to uh, clean energy is going to help platinum, okay. also copper, and and the metals. So so those are the ones that we like most. Oil, there we, we go. Think it's all tap. All right. Thank you. Okay. Oil, maybe a little bit tap. Silver market. You just made the Redditors happy. Francisco Blanche, thank you very much. Likes platinum as well. Appreciate it. All right. So we pretty much blasted through the entire grocery store and metals market there, didn't we? Well, no, we didn't, because that is not the only commodity that is flying high lately. Would you believe that wood is rocking? And apparently, Diana Olick, in this case, money does grow on trees. It does, Brian. Yeah, look, lumber prices could be at a new record high by the end of the week. Framing lumber is right around $945 right now. That's up over 110% year over year, up about 10% in just the last week and matching the 52-week high. So what's doing it? Well, three major factors. First, increased demand for new homes. Housing starts were up 30% year over year in December, according to the U.S. Census. Second, remodeling. The pandemic has everyone at home and all that money we used to spend on going out and traveling, we're now spending on expanding and improving our indoor and outdoor spaces. And finally, rock bottom interest rates. They're just encouraging new home construction even more. And I want to throw in one other factor mentioned to me by Domain Timber Advisors. Durable goods are continuing to increase as people buy more large appliances and furniture, and those items are shipped on wooden pallets. Now, what does all this mean for the housing market? Well, the spike in lumber prices last year added over $16,000 to the cost of a newly built home for consumers, that according to the NAHB. And experts there are saying it could add even more now. Brian? Yeah. Oh, by the way, traveling tomorrow and I couldn't get a rental car because all the rental cars were sold out. Maybe people are hitting the roads again. I don't know. Anyway, so the builders are passing this on. Let's talk about this form of higher prices. But let's say I'm some guy that wants to put a new deck on my house because to your point, I'm not going to travel. I want to stay home. What is this going to do to my budget? How much more are we going to have to pay for just like those kinds of basics? Well, Brian, I'll say hold on to your wallet because I've talked to a lot of contractors in the area around here. You can see they're all over the place with additions going on and going up. And they're talking anywhere from 15 to 25 percent more in your costs for basic things, whether you're putting on a deck or putting up an addition, anything related to lumber. And some other prices are going up as well for other things that go into home construction. So, you know, you got to budget for it and you got to be ready to cut in some places just in order to afford it. There you go, the great lumber run. It may be good for my hometown company of Trex in Winchester, Virginia, sort of the fake wood decking. Uh, Diana Olick, thank you very much. Do appreciate that. All right, from housing to cars, we got a market flash on Toyota. Phil LeBeau has more. Phil. Brian, take a look at shares of Toyota now hitting an all-time high and most notably jumping up more than 1%, almost 2% since announcing just within the last few minutes that it plans to roll out Two all-new pure electric vehicles for the U.S. market this year and another plug-in hybrid electric vehicle for the U.S. this year. The significance? 
Toyota's really not been in the game when it comes to electric vehicles. Well, today the company has said, we're getting in the game. Two new all-electric vehicles for the U.S. market coming this year. That's the reason why I see shares of Toyota moving higher in the last couple of minutes. Yeah. Brian, back to you. Do we... Do we- don't want to put you on the spot, Phil. When you say launching, do we know, like, will the cars be released this year? Like, that means they've been working on them secretly for a couple of years, or are they just going to announce to announce the car will Very be vague. coming down the road? It's vague whether or yeah. not we'll actually see these uh, in showrooms this year or simply announced and, hey, by the way, you'll be able to get it in the middle of next year. We don't even know if, are we talking SUVs? What are we talking about here in terms of the pure electric vehicles? Yeah, we're going to find out, hopefully. And by the way, I hope they got a, a large staff of lithium and other essential critical <laughs> minerals that we have talked about yep. to build all these cars. Another commodity, Phil LeBeau. Thank you very much. All right, coming up, speaking of cars, how a growing semiconductor shortage may have you paying more for your next car. We'll tie it together and call it the great container crisis of 2021 and maybe a new trade war. Why, what's happening in China? What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Has American exporters ticked off and paying a lot more? The exchange, back in two. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Well, semiconductors and microchips increasingly power pretty much everything we own. And there's actually been a growing shortage of them, which could hit all kinds of industries that you may not even be thinking about. Josh Lipton is here with a closer look on why it's happening, who's impacted, how long it might last. And Yunus Yun in Beijing with what China is doing to get ahead and stay ahead. Josh, though, let's begin with you. So, Brian, from video games to cars, everybody here is talking about this chip shortage. For example, Sony is saying they can't produce enough of those new video game consoles, in part, citing the issue. The solar sector, too, Enphase Energy, talking about semiconductor supply constraints. And just this morning on its earnings call, GM saying the chip shortage could cost it up to $2 billion this year. Ford's former CEO was also on CNBC today talking about what all this could mean for the auto market. There's going to be less choice on on the lots because the production just won't be there to the extent that the automakers had planned. Uh, Prices will, will be higher because the automakers will pursue margin, right? So they'll reduce incentives. So why is this shortage happening? Well, tech analyst Patrick Moorhead chalks it up to a sharp recovery in key end markets for chips like phones and cars and no let up in that work from home trend either, meaning people still buying all those PCs, especially the powerful, higher quality models. Bottom line, pressure on supply across the board. And there is no easy fix here, no quick switch to flip. Making a semiconductor can be costly and complex. Lead times of up to 26 weeks are the norm to produce a finished chip. Brian, back to you. 
Josh Lipton, thank you very much. Now let's get the other side of the story, literally the other side of the world. Joining us is Eunice Yoon. Eunice, how is China trying to get ahead? How is China trying to stay ahead? Because a lot of people are blaming Chinese companies for this shortage. Yeah, that's right, Brian. Well, you know, Beijing has always had big ambitions to have its own homegrown industry, uh, but the U.S. restrictions not only on uh, Chinese on, on sales to, the, to China for chips, but also especially on a telecoms giant Huawei, uh, that has really acted as a stimulus for the industry. So Beijing has uh, made chips a top priority uh, for its next five-year plan, which is going to be unveiled in March. Independence is one of five, quote, fundamentals of China's economic development. And $1.4 trillion has been earmarked to develop the semiconductor industry by 2025, with the goal to have 70% of chips used in China made in China by then. So China is offering incentives uh, such as big tax breaks, expediting listings, directing state funding into startups as well as publicly listed companies. And right now, the most headway is in some of the lower tech memory chips uh, with the country's Titan SMIC um, still just four, maybe five years behind the leader TSMC. So the government's call to action, as well as the money that's being dedicated to the sector, has uh, really not only motivated and mobilized state firms, but also private companies who now are concerned that just like Huawei, they too could one day become a target of the U.S. government. So now they're seeing it more as a necessity to support the domestic um, industry in order to have supply here as opposed to just something that, you know, would have been nice, um, but that they, of course, would love to usually choose um, chips that are overseas because they want to make sure, and they would argue uh, here, that they have to have the best of the best when it comes to chips. Yeah. Eunice Yoon, staying up later, maybe getting up really early for us in Beijing, but we appreciate it. It's an important <laughs> story. Eunice, great to see you again, my friend. Thank you very much. Well, those tiny little chips are throwing a big-time wrench into the global auto supply chain as well, and some car makers could be facing some massive losses. In fact, IHS market predicting that the automotive chip famine, if you will, could result in nearly 700,000 fewer cars built in the first quarter of this year. Let's talk more about this and the overall story with Phil Amsrud. He is Senior Principal Analyst at IHS Market, covering the automotive semiconductor space and Phil, I guess we never really, we think about phones and computers. We never really think about cars, but they're basically just motorized computers themselves at this point. Is there some kind of political reaction from the U.S. that may help here, given that these shortages, unfortunately, like so much everything else these days, is coming from China because they control almost the entire global supply? I don't know if I would would say that. Clearly, there's a, a governmental concern um, as you look at this, and there have been uh, meetings between, I, I believe, Germany, U.S., and, and other countries as, the, uh, as, as partners to the OEMs as they've gone in and meet, met with uh, TSMC, for example, to, uh, to try to get um, higher priorities. Um, but I think from a political standpoint, there, there's not going to be a political short-term solution to this. There's not going to be a, a manufacturing short-term solution to this. I mean, right now, it's uh, the, the number of ICs that can be produced is relatively fixed. You can't 
just create capacity overnight. Um, so now it's a question of priorities. And you know, the, the OEMs are trying to get um, more priority. And I think in the short term, they're, they're getting some commitments uh, for getting to the head of the line. Um, but that only gets you so far. As uh, one of the earlier um, reports had said, you know, we're talking about 26 weeks lead times. Um, you're not going to be able to mm-hmm. prioritize OEMs for, for that long period of time. Yeah, well, and listen, also, it, you know, China makes a lot of stuff. They make semiconductors, that, that, and they make things that semiconductors go in. And if their domestic market needs it, that's that. But you heard in our reports, Phil, there's a lot of people that are thinking, you know, that SMIC and Taiwan Semi in China, that they are uh, frustrating, if you will, global supply at least. Is there anything that we can do, or is this literally just got to let the bottlenecks that, that happen because of lockdowns and a rapid reopen in China – let that work through the system. I mean, at this point, that, that essentially is, is, I'm afraid of where we're at, is the, the, the situation is what it is. I mean, the, uh, the creation of this really goes back to the COVID um, crisis of, uh, of last year that created um, uh, a drop in demand. And then the, 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 the foundries were looking to fill that up. They were able to fill that up. And by the time automotive started showing recoveries, um, all that demand had been consumed. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a good problem to have if you make semiconductors. Um, it's no fun to be expediting things. But on the other hand, yeah. you know, everything you make, you're selling. Uh, you're either selling it to, into a, a Game Boy or into a car or into a computer right now. So, you know, in that sense, uh, it's kind of a good time to be a semiconductor supplier. Yeah. But there's a lot of pain and suffering going on as, as people are trying to get to the head of the line and trying to get more... Uh, material for their uh, their individual projects. Yep. Phil Amsred, IHS Market, looking at this growing story. Phil, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Oh, and by the way, it's not just semiconductors, folks. Ahead, why U.S. companies trying to sell anything, goods, food, whatever, to China are crying foul over a growing crisis at the ports. This story is next. And why former TD Ameritrade CEO Joe Moglia is putting a big bet down on fintech he's ahead by the way if you haven't already and who hasn't but if you haven't download the cnbc app today and check us out wherever you may be going if anywhere we're back right after this true or false walmart has eye care true stop by walmart to save and browse top designer frames right where you already shop and they accept most insurance welcome to easy eye care Welcome to your Walmart. Hi, everybody. I'm Contessa Brewer. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. President Biden has announced sanctions against Myanmar in response to the coup staged by the country's military. He's calling for the military to relinquish power and Democratic leaders. The White House also says this is not the time for migrants to come to the border. Press Secretary Jen Psaki pointed to the pandemic and the administration's short time in office to set up new migration procedures. Hey, just in time for Valentine's Day, federal regulators say last year, romance scams jumped 50%. Reported losses hit a record $304 million. The pandemic led people to seek more relationships online. And look, scammers then could say, no, I can't meet you in person. There's a pandemic on. Minnesota police say the gunman who opened fire at a health clinic near Minneapolis had made previous threats of a mass shooting 
at the facility. You can watch the news tonight with Shepard Smith to find out more about the possible motives for the shooting and who those victims were. Brian, send it back to you. All right, Contessa Brewer, thank you very much. Well, it's time now for our daily vaccination update, where we really stand in the race for the shots. And the numbers seem to be hitting a little bit of a speed bump, not a big jump from yesterday's numbers. In fact, just over 43 million doses total administered, about 32.8 million people getting at least one shot, which means the percentage of U.S. adults over 18 with at least one shot only ticked up a little bit, 12.8% from yesterday's 12.5. All this, the Biden administration focused its attention on a key issue, convincing every American to take the vaccine. According to a new CDC study, around 49% of Americans, only half, say they are definitely going to be vaccinated. That is up from September, but still pretty low. We're going to talk more about this gap maybe in the coming days and whatever that lag between the first shot and the second shot, that three to four week lag that you have to take or if a lot of areas are going to start building up supplies because we're hearing reports of empty vaccination locations. Story certainly to watch. All right. Ahead. A rising market isn't just helping your 401k. Believe it or not, it might be helping to save state budgets as well. We'll tell you how. And take a look at shares of Twitter moving higher after beating earnings on both the top and the bottom lines. Although it did warn that growth would slow in upcoming quarters. Here's what the company's CFO had to say about getting users to stay on the often confusing platform for new users. We don't focus as much on how much time people spend as we think about helping them find what they're looking for when they come to Twitter. If we f- help you find the topic, the information, whether it's around the Super Bowl, around politics or entertainment, you're going to come back over and over again. All right, welcome back. Well, we can maybe call this next story the great container crisis of 2020 and 2021. The cost for those shipping containers, you know, those big metal boxes you see everywhere? Well, they are going through the roof. In fact, from China to a West Coast port like L.A. or Long Beach, prices have more than doubled and close to it from China to the East Coast. Now, this is actually causing a huge problem for U.S. companies looking to sell their goods either to Asia or other parts of the world because it's now so lucrative for shipping companies and leasing firms who control the boxes that they'd rather send the cargo containers back to China empty rather than them go somewhere inside the United States, Indiana, Oklahoma, wherever, to pick up food or other exports. In fact, this is becoming such an issue for U.S. trade that the government is getting involved. And recently, the Federal Maritime Commission has started asking questions about what exactly is happening and how to fix it. Carl Benzel is a commissioner at the Federal Maritime Commission, and he joins us now, one of the authors or the author of that letter that was sent to some of the shipping companies. All right, Carl, it's a little bit of a confusing story for people that are not involved in the world of global trade or shipping. So in sort of, you know, seamen's or layman's terms, what exactly is happening to cause this massive price spike in the container business? Brian, thanks. Uh, it's uh, nice to talk. Um, we've had a, a big uh, challenge with COVID-19 uh, going from in February, uh, March, uh, uh, a situation where the imports in the United States of uh, containerized imports 
we're down 20 to 30 percent until to a situation in May or June when we increase by 20 or 30 percent, sort of a, a complete reversal as we imported a lot of PPE. We imported e-commerce, home improvement stuff as the population adjusted to, to living at home. Um, so uh, we really have uh, were taken by surprise, I think, uh, in that in that early summer time frame. And we didn't have enough equipment. Uh, uh, we didn't have uh, uh, retailers were building up cargo and they were not getting uh, uh, trucking back to the ports in, in, yeah. in time to, to get uh, cargo processed through the ports. And ultimately, we ran into a situation where we are right now, where uh, we basically have gone from zero ships uh, outside of the port of L.A. Long Beach to 41 waiting one or two weeks uh, to be able to discharge cargo. Um, Wow. Yeah, we've seen, uh, Carl, Carl, let me jump in. We've seen some of the helicopter shots. You know, it's amazing. If you're off the coast of L.A., there's gigantic ships just sitting there that were not there a couple of months ago, zero to 41 in a couple of weeks. You got empty containers. I guess what, what a couple of people on Twitter and other people I've talked to have asked is, why would it be more profitable to send an empty container back to China or wherever than to put it into commission inside the United States to pick up soybeans or bourbon or whatever it might be? It's a, it's a confluence of issues. Uh, generally, the cargo that we get from China is uh, is high tech. It's uh, it has uh, greater value than, for instance, soybeans. Uh, perhaps not bourbon, but uh, but for for the most part, U.S. exports are lower value agricultural commodities. And with rates going so high, uh, the cargo, uh, the shippers, the carriers have been trying to get containers back to Asia. To take advantage of, of, of the uh, rates that they that they're getting to ship from Asia to the United States. And I've been working on this for a couple of days. I'll be traveling tomorrow about it. And it's I asked, I guess, a dumb question. I said, why don't we just make more containers? They're pretty basic things, right? In fact, there used to be too many of them. Now there's not enough. Why is there also seemingly a slowdown in the manufacture of containers, Carl? It's it's unclear. We're we're looking at it right now, but uh, at the beginning of COVID, uh, because all of this manufacture uh, of containers takes place in China, uh, which which is an issue. I, I think we we need to consider our reliance on this little metal container in terms of our trade and and our objectives as a nation. But uh, uh, they stopped manufacturing them. Uh, they have been very slow on the uptake. Uh, on on uh, mm-hmm. on manufacturing containers uh, at a point where they're manufacturing all sorts of other imports that are coming here. So I think we, we really need to uh, take a look at what's going on um, and, and and evaluate it. Yeah. We see now that the price for a container is 50% more than it was earlier this year. And we've seen reductions over the year of about 30% in terms of the manufacture of the containers that we use for shipping. Which, which, Carl, we got to leave it there, but that makes no sense. If the price of something goes up 50%, people who make that something generally trying to make a lot more of it so they can sell it, but new supplies are down, prices are up. It's a heck of a story. Commissioner Carl Benson, we appreciate your time. Thank you. All right, well, Thank certainly you. we don't talk about them much, if ever, but there are companies who are really benefiting from these rising prices. They are either container leasing or owning companies, and their stocks have been booming. Check out these recent moves from their lows in 
Triton International, up to 160%. CAI, 260. And Textainer Group, ticker TGH, that is up 285% from its lows. They own and lease containers. And by the way, this affects every aspect of global trade, so it's not enough to do just sitting here. So we're going to dig deeper into this big story. We're going to be live at a port in South Carolina on Friday, so be sure to tune in CNBC all day for that. We will be at the port of Charleston. All right, coming up, billionaire Joe Moglia joining us about his big new bet on fintech, the Reddit rebellion, retail trading, and much more. He sits down with Bob Pisani. Dow, Dow's up 52% right now. Will we make it? Or 52%, 52 points, 52% It's like a container. We're back after this. All right, welcome back. Got a little merger news today in the fintech space involving FG New America Acquisition. Who's that? Well, that is the SPAC led by former TD Ameritrade chairman and CEO Joe Moglia, and he joins Bob Pisani now for a special interview. Bob. Hello, Brian. Good to see you. So today, FG New America announced a reverse merger with Opportunity Financial, or OpFi as it's called. Stock is expected to trade on the New York Stock Exchange under the tickle OP. FI, the deal to close by the end of the second quarter of 2021. OpFi is a financial technology platform that provides access to credit for consumers. Joining me now, the man behind the spec, Joe Mowgli, a former chairman and CEO of TD Ameritrade. Joe, good to see you. Now, you told me this morning when we were Hi, talking Bob. about this that what attracted you to this company uh, is that nearly 60 million consumers lack access to mainstream financial products, and OpFi provides those services. What's it doing? That's right. I mean, there are 60 million. It's unbelievable. 60 million people in the United States that literally live paycheck to paycheck, don't have access to credit. And when they need to pay, uh, 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 fix a car, uh, replace a window, pay a medical bill, buy books for school, they actually struggle to be able to do that. So what so so what uh, OpFi tr- tries to do is is do, it does everything it can with its platform, which is incredibly scalable. They got greater capacity than that to reach out to the individuals that have both the ability and the willingness to be able to pay. And when they can do that and they're successful doing that, they actually increase the quality of life of these families. So that was something that very, very, very much drew me to it, as well as I think they've got an incredible management team that you know, we would want to work with. I've known you for so many years, of course, at TD Ameritrade. You were a great help to me as a reporter many years ago. And now you're in the SPAC business. So what's amazing yeah. to me, Joe, is the market is just saturated with SPACs. This year alone, Joe, 133 SPACs have raised $40 yeah. billion versus 23 IPOs that have just raised $17 billion. SPACs are overwhelming the world. Where is all this <laughs> new money coming from, Joe? And aren't you concerned at all that this is way too many companies going public too fast? Well, I think we've got we just have to put this in perspective, Bob. Now, I know the market is saturated and I recognize there's a lot of criticism and some of that criticism is very fair. So in terms of the stats, at least that I have, you go back to the beginning of last year. And as of February 5th, there were 366 SPACs that became public. Now, especially for the for the retail investor that's watching the show, that's a shell. And the whole objective of that that SPAC and that IBO at IPO is to wind up with a merger candidate somewhere down the road. Most of the SPACs will not be successful. Then at some point when they do have a merger candidate, there is an announcement. 
then the key with that announcement is who the SPAC's actually going to merge with. Because by the time it closes, the SPAC disappears, doesn't exist, and then, then, the, then the company's got to be able to stand on its own. So as an individual investor, you've got the opportunity to trade uh, and get involved between IPO and announcement. But when you get to the announcement, then you've got another three months to do your research on the actual firm and decide what's going on. So think of it more yeah, in terms key- of there may be a lot of people out there trying to do it, but not that many people are getting it done successfully. Yeah, and the, of course, the key is the optionality, as you mentioned. That seems to be what everybody is uh, in love with. You can always back out of the deal if you don't like it. Joe, I got to move on here. I want to talk about Robinhood and about GameStop. Yeah. And what about that Reddit crowd? Short trade is fading in, in, in GameStop and everything else. But what about the long-term fate of the Reddit traders? Now, you ran TD Ameritrade. Can we turn these excited young investors into long-term investors? And how, how can we do that? How do we keep them? Well, I think over time, each investor has to decide what he or she needs for themselves. So that can take place. That takes place over time. I think the, the reality, as, as great as that short squeeze was, and I give credit to the people that led it, I think the real thing we've got to take responsibility for is what happens when the trade turns around? What happens when the, they start to sell and the market's coming down? You need to have better education and communication so you understand that. So if you understand what leverage is, because it's great on the way up, it can kill you on the way down. If you understand in times of great, great volatility, in times of great volatility, there's a chance that trading might be halted. If you understand that, if you recognize that bear market's totally different from a bull market, you've got a better chance of being able to manage your risk, do a better job, learn more. And I think from there you can pro- progress more into the long-term investor. But we got, we, I think it's the brokerage firm. Them? I think it's, I think it's, uh, right. I think it's the individual investor. Uh, and, and the, and the uh, social media groups, they got to take responsibility for that. Joe, I need a short answer on this. The question is, they're not going to go out and open Vanguard accounts with these young kids. They're, they're, they're going to want something else. Can we keep them in like a separately managed account? How do you, well, what is going to hold them in there? Do, can we open new businesses that are robo-advisors or, or, or new opportunities? I just don't want them to leave uh, angry and saying, oh, the, the, the game is, doesn't work for us anymore. I want to keep these people. <laughs> Well, I think they're not going to leave angry, Bob, if they understand what's going on. Like if they can do a better job of managing their downside risk and then over time realizing how critical they're going to have trouble going through a bear market. So they need to realize over time exactly what that means in terms of what their long term goals are. As they start to understand that, they will start to shift from somebody that day trades all the time, to maybe somebody that's a trader, but also thinks in terms of long term investment. Yeah. I think it takes place over time and it's a matter of education. Let's hope we can keep them. I like them. I like their, their energy, and I, I hope they stick around. Joe Moglia, thanks very much. Appreciate the help. Brian, back to you. Thanks, Bob. All right, Bob, great stuff. Joe, really appreciate it, guys. Thank you. All right, coming up, some state and city budgets did not get hit quite as hard as feared last year, and you may be surprised to find out why. And it is Black History Month, and so we continue to honor some of our friends and our CNBC contributors. Here is Bono and Ice with his advice for the next generation. The next generation of leaders, business leaders, politicians, etc., are on the other side of the camera. They're not sitting here. They're not me. They're not my peers. I want you all to adopt a mindset that you have limitless possibilities. And while I understand that you may not have all the luxuries at your disposal, opportunity met with tireless effort will lead to results. And I look forward to watching next generation imparting their knowledge on you. 
And, of course, you can see more Bonwin on Fast Money many times per week. Check it out, all right? And you can read more by going to cnbc.com slash invest in you. We're back in two. Well, across the nation, many state and local budgets are in shambles, flooded with debt as revenues dried up. But there is one unexpected part of this dire scene that is doing more than its fair share. Stock market tax revenues. Robert Frank joining us with this story. Robert. Hey, Brian. Well, state tax revenues were expected to fall 10 to 20 percent last year. Turns out they fell only 1.6 percent. And a J.P. Morgan analysis found that 21 states actually saw revenue increases last year. And the main reason was a surge in income tax collections from high earners and the stock market. California, New York, and Illinois, all of which rely heavily on those top earners, saw income tax collections rise above 2019 levels. In California, revenues in December came in 26% above last year. That was largely thanks to IPOs and a lot of stock sales. New York's tax collections came in nearly $2 billion, higher than projected. And in Connecticut, they're expecting an extra $900 million this fiscal year, saying most of the upside surprise is going to come from capital gains. Even New York City saw higher income tax collections than before the pandemic. State and local governments, though, they still have huge budget holes due to higher pandemic costs and all those social service needs. Moody's Analytics estimated a budget shortfall of $400 billion across all the states by 2022, and state and local governments have laid off over 1.4 million employees. States that rely heavily on tourism and oil, they are the hardest hit. Hawaii receipts down 14%, Florida down 8%, and Nevada down 13%. Brian? A little surprised by Florida, Robert, given that I was just there, and pretty much so was everybody else but us. Robert Frank, there you go. Thank you very much. All right, that does it for the exchange, but don't go anywhere. Fed Chair Jerome Powell set to speak on the economy and the recovery in just a few minutes. Catch it live on Power Lunch after this quick break. I'm heading to South Carolina. We'll see you for more on that container story as well. Have a great day. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.